Um, the boss actually came to me after I signed off my apprenticeship and, and said, oh, so let me guess, you know everything now and you're going you're gonna to go out and start your own shop. I looked at him and went, huh? Every single job that I've ever had, everything that I've ever done has been a stepping stone for where I am now. I had no intentions of being a business owner. <laughs> I had no intentions of any of it. I still see myself as a mechanic, <laughs> even though it's my shop. My chat today is with Spenner, owner of small business RHD Classic. When we started doing the Brave podcast, I put Spenner on my list. I first met Spenner last year at our Together Townsville event. The next day, she had something to say. She wasn't happy. I gave her a call and we had a good half hour chat. I'm so glad I did because I got to learn some amazing things from this woman. She's a single Indigenous woman who at 27 decided to change careers from hospitality to become a mechanic, an industry that is heavily male-dominated. This is my chat with Spenner. The Community Information Centre acknowledges the Woolgarugaba and Bindal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast today was recorded. Now, how do you say your name? Is it Shireen? Shireen. It's Shireen. Phonet- it is phonetically spelt. Yeah. Shireen. But nobody calls me Shireen. <laughs> yeah. I think I've been called Shireen <laughs> by everyone time. for about 15 years. Shireen. Correct. And you go by Spanner. I do. Where did the nickname Spanner come from? Um, believe it or not, it's not actually because of my job. Um, I actually got my nickname from a young deaf girl who always um, used to visit the workshop, who was the boss's daughter. Every time she seen me when I would go to the house and everything, um, apparently I still had a spanner in my back pocket. But if you've ever spent any time around somebody who is deaf, um, their their own dialect when it comes to sign language. So every single deaf person is like their own little village. So you end up with a sign name, but people know what the sign means, but don't associate a person with it. So when you see this, it actually means spanner girl, but in her language, it means Shireen. So for somebody who did not run in her circles on a regular basis, they went, who's Spanner Girl? Hence why I got the nickname Spanner Girl and the boys all shortened it to Spanner. Because it's easier to say one word than two. <laughs> you really don't know. I don't know if you really want to know the other reason. <laughs> I'll tell you if you want to know the other Go reason. Go for it. <laughs> so I spent 10 years in hospitality prior to becoming a mechanic. So for me, um, it's water off a duck's back, one-liners and stuff like that. But um, you've always got the guys that want to come into the shop and go, yeah, yeah, we know why you're called Spanner. And my statement is quite simple. If your nuts don't tighten with a cleavage like mine, it ain't my problem. (laughs) (laughs) And that would shut them up pretty quick. (laughs) Pretty much. They usually just go, (laughs) what? So what was life like growing up for you? Um, Single parent family, four of us kids. My mum still lives in the same house I grew up in, out in Kerwin. My mum uh, is probably my my courage most of the time as, as, as a young adult. Um, she showed us that it didn't matter what you could do, whatever you put your mind to. She raised four of us, two boys that used to eat like horses on, on a pension. 
she could only ever work part-time because my sister was actually born quite ill. Um, there was no such thing as a swelled head in our house. <laughs> so, yeah, my mum is very one strong-willed woman um, who uh, has coped through single parenthood um, with all of the, the narcissistic behaviour that usually gets thrown at you for that generation. Um, it was just not the done thing. It's way more accepted these days. Even even when I became a single parent, it was much more accepted. But yeah, it was definitely not easy growing up in a housing commission house in a single parent household um, with that sort of stuff. Yeah. So how old were you when you're in the hospitality industry? I started at uh, 15 and at uh, Pizza Hut here in Townsville when it opened in Kerwin. Nice. So left school. Did you go the right the right way through to yep. grade 12? And what did you do after you left? I actually went to uh, QUT University for a year. What was the aim there? Um, Bachelor of Visual Arts. However, they took photography out um, at that particular time and I couldn't major in it. And I think I got a little a little put out with some of it because it was, they said that there was no rules when it comes to artistic and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden the rules came in and it was like, okay. So I did not want to spend another four years at uni doing something that I just felt that wasn't going to fit for with me in the end. So instead ended up, um, well, already in hospitality because you need to be able to earn some money when you're at university and there's not much when you've got to be in class most of the time. So yeah, I continued down hospitality um, and yeah, got some pretty, pretty high up skill levels within hospitality as it was. I go from chopping the firewood and cleaning the restaurants all the way through to silver service, gaming lounge attendant functions, all sorts of things. Like I even did um, a very small stint of short order cook. You mentioned a lot of jobs that you had within the hospitality industry, but did they ever allow you to be able to climb and progress your career? I got as far as supervisor in hospitality. Um, and there was only one manager that was ever honest enough with me to tell me why I would never get further than supervisor. Why? Gift of the gab. I'm worth too much money on the floor because I can keep the people there. I can keep the people actually enjoying their time there. They didn't want me upstairs hidden in an office doing something. Yeah, right. When you actually get told that. That feels a bit devaluing, doesn't it? Not sure if devaluing is quite the right word, but yeah, it it sort of made me feel stunted. It's like, well, you're not going to let me get any further. So hospitality was a stepping stone or? Life is a stepping stone. Yeah, I disagree with hospitality being a stepping stone. I'd say life is a stepping stone and every single job that I've ever had, everything that I've ever done has been a stepping stone for where I am now and even now technically is a stepping stone for where I'm going to be. Next, yeah. I did 10 years in hospitality. Um, so That's enough to step off to the next day? It actually wasn't the reason I stepped off. Um, my daughter came to me um, and said to me, Mummy, I don't see you. How old was she? She was four. Uh, heartstring, pull. Doesn't matter who you are, that cuts. And I was literally dressed on my way to going to work. So I was either going to bed as she was getting up or I was going to work as she was coming home from school. So I ended up, um, the day that she said that, I literally walked up the road to TAFE after handing my resignation in to my manager and said to the TAFE guy, what have you got? He said, what? He said, what have you got? I need a nine to five job. Um, what are you interested in? 
then I don't care. I'll make my own drive and my own passion about it. Give me something that'll give me a nine to five job. So he just started rattling off these courses. I don't think he's ever had somebody come in that didn't know what path they wanted to take, <laughs> like a direction, uh, a subject or something. And he came across uh, pre-vocational in automotive. Um, so it gave you the, the taste tester as to what an apprenticeship would be like and to see whether or not you could do it or whether or not you liked it. So I thought, man, that's all right. So I went, log me in for that. <laughs> had you ever been around automotives growing up or interested in it? Nope, nope, and nope. <laughs> My brothers are not rev heads. My uncles, I have no family members, no good friends that are rev heads. So there was nothing that inspired you in that industry that went... I liked motorcycles. I think I was 16. I was 16 and I went to the drag strip. (laughs) And they just had the cars and that going down the drag strip. I was hooked. As soon as I seen them going down, I'm like, I'm going to do that. (laughs) The smell, the sound, the burnouts, the... It was just everything. So from the time I was 16, anything that had that, that rubber smell was sort of like, mm, okay, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah. I was always curious to learn about everything. How'd that go? I was the only girl in the class of 16. Wasn't the only Indigenous um, person in the, in the classroom, which was great. I got to talk to some other, other Murrays in the room, which was awesome. Um, I was probably third or fourth being the oldest, even at 27. Um, and it was it was not an easy course. It was it was at the time when work for the doll was in, and you either had to be earning or learning. So it was frustrating because it's a classroom, and everybody's perception of a classroom is you have to be there. Until one of the teachers said, "Sorry, this is not school. If you don't want to be here, there's the door. Make your mind up now, because those that want to be here will stay." And I was just like, I like you. Yeah. <laughs> I was green when it came to the industry, so I wanted to know what it was they were talking about. I was willing to take that next step and actually go and have a chat with the teacher during my lunch hour and go, okay, I understand this, this and this. Does that mean this, this and this? And they'd go, well done. Or they'd go, no, no, back this way. <laughs> but it was good. So I'm guessing male teachers? Yep, every single one of them. <laughs> I'm going to tell you this one. This one, this one's quite cool. We had to do a test and it was naming all of the tools that were in front of you. And this one particular teacher was, yeah, let's just say he was one of those teachers that definitely made sure you knew what what you were talking about. And if you didn't, he made it known. So when I was doing the test for the tools, I come across a particular file and I knew it was the file because it's quite simple it looks like a file but every single file actually has a proper name and I'm sitting there and I'm looking at it and I'm looking at it and he just looks at me and he goes what are you always referring to me as and I went oh it's a bastard file <laughs> <laughs> so I knew what it was I just needed that that trigger <laughs> and he knew what the prompt was pretty much he was one of those ones that would actually go out of his way to, to help me out um, and spend that extra time with me if I needed it. Um, no other, Nobody was supposed to be there, but during um, the times when my mum couldn't look after my daughter for me, I would duck out during our afternoon break, grab my daughter, and she'd sit in the garden outside and, until one of the teachers went, no, she can't sit out there. So, like, they were really uh, accepting of 
my situation and being flexible. So with that course, was placement involved? Yes, I had to find my own work placement for the six months. What was that like? That in itself was a nightmare. I went to over a dozen places um, and the industry is definitely throttled with male egotism and hard men to deal with. I got laughed out of five in particular. One of those particular places actually said, tits in the workshop, not going to happen. To your face? To my face. What was your reaction when he said that? Thank you very much for being honest. Mm. So did you find a placement in the end? I had a mate uh, sitting at the house with me one night and I was so mad. I was so frustrated because I couldn't find anywhere. I'd been looking for three weeks during my own downtime Um, even though they were told that I was covered by the TAFE insurance and everything was honky-dory, the only thing that the TAFE wanted to do was come out and make sure it was a business. They just didn't want anybody in a backyard area. They wanted proper qualified mechanics in places and making sure that it was a registered business. Um, It's a six-month placement. If I remember correctly, it was every Wednesday and the whole of the school holidays. So we're not talking a short amount of time here, but... My mate was sitting at the house and he'd said to me, well, you've got two choices. You either come and work on the locos with me or you go and see Bruce. And I went, I don't want to go back to shift work, so I'm not going to go and work out on the locos with you as much as I'd love working on the choo-choo trains because <laughs> I think they're awesome. But I didn't want to go back to shift work. Um, so for me it was, okay, but Bruce isn't where he, he, he quit the job. And he's going, no, no, he opened his shop two blocks down the road from where you're currently sitting. Like, okay, so we'll go see him tomorrow. Um, went and seen Did him. you know who Bruce was? Yeah, Bruce I'd actually met, um, believe it or not, at one of the local dealerships. So we organised to go and see him the next day. And I said, I need half an hour of your time. And he goes, cool, mm, this time tomorrow. So I went home and I actually wasn't sure whether or not I was going to be allowed to work on motorcycles because... It's pre-vocational and automotive. And automotive, in my head, was cars. So I went and asked the teachers. And they went, we don't care, so long as it's an engine. It can be a whippersnapper, it can be a a Sea-Doo, it can be a truck, it can be a diesel. We don't care, so long as it's an engine. And I'm like, awesome, I'm going to be doing motorcycles then, (laughs) hopefully. Um, Went back, sat down, came dressed appropriately. I had my steel caps on, my work gear on. And from what he was used to, which was my hospitality days, he was like okay what are we doing here I put all the paperwork to him for TAFE um, told him what it was I was doing told him why it was I was doing it and he said not a worry being a single dad with one daughter who's disabled and in a wheelchair he completely understood my scenario he understood my reasons for wanting to get it and do the nine to five um and he was quite willing to actually put me through to see um whether or not he could help me out with the path that I've now chosen so you started there for placement yep how was it loved it um loved what it was I got out of it um even towards the end with the TAFE course we actually had to do an in-house project um our project was rebuilding a Mighty Boy engine um the teachers actually put me in charge, which was just allocating people to each section and going, all right, I need you to concentrate on this. So I was a bit stunned at that. Um, 
that Where did one, that go down in the classroom? That one thorn in my side. He had the entire course been giving me a hard time, including who let you off the chain. So I was actually underneath this car when he decided to mosey on into the classroom late as always. And I rolled out from underneath the car. So he's in the superior position to start off with. And um, he's gone, oh, you still need to undo this, 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 and this. I just rolled out from underneath and I went, hey, if you're not helping, you're being a hindrance. If you're being a hindrance, F off. (laughs) And that was probably the end of that one. He did not argue with me one one iota after that. Um, I think it was actually that, that particular incident which actually gave my teachers the idea of nominating me for pre-vocational student of the year. That's so good. So that's where I started. <laughs> so you finished that? I finished that. Um, and Bruce actually offered me a TA position for the next six months. Nice. Unbeknownst to me in the beginning, he was actually trying to work out how to put me on as an apprentice. So you hadn't had that conversation with you? Hadn't had that conversation with me. Um, about three months into that TA position, he, he offered me the apprenticeship and I knew that the next step was an apprenticeship. I hadn't actually decided whether whether or not to I was going to ask him if I could do it here or if I had to go somewhere else. Yeah, but he was already turning the wheels behind the scenes. <laughs> he was already turning those wheels. So. so you got offered an apprenticeship? Yep. And then the apprenticeship board tried to take it off me. Why? <sighs> because I already had a Cert Level 3. I had a Cert 2 and a Cert 3. In How many years opposite... prior had you done that? Five years. Apparently government time frame is seven before you can study again yep is it still like that now do you reckon i believe it is but i believe there are more avenues available to you to actually explore as a recourse so and this came about i'm hoping because of my scenario um, and that was because i had could prove that i had not been able to get a job using or utilizing any of those um, skill sets that i learned in that course what did you have to go through to jump that hurdle? Oh, it was it was redoing the entire paperwork. The worst part was they didn't tell us for like six weeks. In the end, I believe we actually went in. We closed the shop and we went in and sat there and redid all of the paperwork. And the lady's gone, oh, I'm not seeing a problem with this. You've ticked all the right boxes. You've proven that you've done this. She says, I've spoken to head office in Brisbane. We're going to allow you to do it. I never really got the reason as to why they changed their mind. I think it could have been because I said I was going to start the choo-choo train. And I was a little vocal back then. Actually, I'm still vocal now. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I did. I got cranky. I'd actually said to one of the ladies, do you want to start me on the media trail? The first thing it's going to be is female in a male-dominated industry. Second one is going to be a single parent trying to re-enter the workforce. Third one's going to be Indigenous female trying to break the mould. Do I need to keep going with this actual path? So because if you're going to push me, I will do it. And then they changed their mind. <laughs> so I kept my apprenticeship. And I just kept going. I loved it. So once you finished your apprenticeship, what did that, what, like what was doing your apprenticeship like? 
My apprenticeship was, it was always interesting because I was always doing something new because it was such a small shop. You got to touch base on everything at so many different levels. Um, it was not easy with some things. People did not want the apprentice working on, on their bike. And that makes it very, very difficult. And I understand the reasoning behind that. And I can appreciate the reasoning behind that. Do they know you're an apprentice? Yeah, they all knew I was an apprentice. I never told them I was qualified because I wasn't. I was always honest in the outset. And I think that was probably one of the things that stood me in, in good graces with a lot of people because I was honest of the fact that I didn't know something but I was quite happy to go and find out. Um, the reason everybody knew I was still an apprentice is because I actually won Apprentice of the Year as a second-year apprentice, state and national. Very good. So the Ulysses program started in 2004. Originally, when they first put it out, it was actually only open to TAFE students. Um, somewhere along the lines, um, it got handed over to our shop and um, Ulysses were rung. So we kindly explained to them that by limiting it to TAFE students, you've actually just cut out the entire of North Queensland, the entire of Northern Territory and three quarters of Western Australia. So is that because the apprenticeship isn't offered through TAFE? Correct. Where's it often? MTA, Motor Trades Association. Right. So MTAQ was the one that we were using um, and they're the only ones that offered it. So they changed their, their outlook and went, oh, we weren't aware of that. So then they started doing their own research. That was the end of it in my book until I got a phone call um, and the boss was out at the time and it was – a gentleman from the Ulysses Club who who was talking to me and knew exactly who I was and asked me to sit down and talk with him for five minutes. I said, I'm actually up to my elbows in, in Greece right now. And he's like, I think you need to take this phone call. It's like, okay, what can I do for you? And he's like, no, it's what can I do for you? And then congratulated me on being the state winner. I'm like, sorry, sorry what? Um, excuse me? <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, that was actually the day that he told me um, that I'd been nominated and it was actually my trainer who had nominated me as a second-year apprentice. My trainer, Bob Knight, absolutely adore that man. Even now I still adore that man. Um, he used to go out of his way to just drop in and see what we were doing. And unbeknownst to me, he was assessing me while I was doing stuff and I thought we were just having a conversation. <laughs> So he could see what it was I was doing and he was always um, astounded at the fact that even though I started my apprenticeship and they tried to, to crush it on me, I just kept rolling, just kept going. I didn't stop. Um, so, yeah, winning, winning Apprentice of the Year was, was phenomenal and, and learning what he wrote, I was, I was humbled. I was very humbled to, to, to see and hear what he had written about me. And that it was backed up by my employer. So, yeah. In a male-dominated industry. I was the inaugural winner for the Ulysses Incentive Program for Motorcycle Mechanics. That's so awesome. I was the last thing they expected. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when you finished your apprenticeship and then... I, started, I decided it was time for more training. Really? Really. So what did you do then? I did management course. 
I've always been um, in that role, no matter what, with whatever it is I've done. Um, I've done girl guides. I've done stage work. Um, I did brownies. Uh, there was never anything that I wasn't always into. And without fail, somewhere along the line, someone would put me in charge. I was quite happy to help from the background without actually having to be the leader. Um, but when they put me in the leader role, then I would do the leader role. But it was not something that was always my aim. Yeah. Isn't it amazing as kids, we, you know, you do girl guides or you do brownies and all of those things because they're fun things to learn at that age, but you don't realise that you're learning pivotal skills. And you've referred back to them as things that you did in your childhood that have obviously carried through to you in your adulthood. Yep. But that's also comes back to what I said originally, stepping stones every single thing oh, I had no intentions of being a business owner <laughs> I had no intentions of any of it even at this stage yeah no I still see myself as a mechanic <laughs> even though it's my shop but even after so you went into a management course I went and did a management course so um the boss actually came to me after I signed off my apprenticeship and and said oh so let me guess you know everything now and you're gonna you're gonna go out and start your own shop I looked at him and went huh no, now the learning curve really begins. And I think that alone was what made him go, oh, so you're not going anyway. Okay, so I'm going to make your workshop um, supervisor. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yep, you got 12 months to get it, get your head around it. Your workshop supervisor, I've just hired another apprentice. And you're in an industry that's very male-dominated. To break that stigma down and break those walls down and tell them to step aside while you watch me climb is just so satisfying. Satisfying is when you have somebody walk into the workshop and go, who said a girl could touch my bike? And I went, it's not like you have to look, kettle's that way. (laughs) Or even now, um, customers get told, go see that spanner bloke. (laughs) <laughs> and then they walk in and see Spanaker. No, they actually ask for that Spanner bloke. Oh, right. <laughs> they have no idea because there's guys in my shop as well. Duffy's been in the motorcycling industry for as long as I can remember. Um, somebody told me I was an idiot after I bought the shop for going and asking him to work for me. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Um, he gets called Mr. Spanner and he just laughs at it. So Duffy's in his 60s. Age was not an issue for me whether it be the apprentice that I actually then started training. He was actually older than me. So technically I was the youngest in the shop and I was the workshop supervisor. Um, the, the front of house guy that then started working for us was older than me. So I was still the youngest in the shop. And then I bought the shop. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So you did your apprenticeship. You did your management course. Did my management course. And then how many years after did that present? That you... So it was nine years that I was working there including my apprenticeship in that time um, before the boss actually came and said, um, I'm interested in selling the shop to you to us two mechanics because by that stage my apprentice was qualified. And I just looked at him and said, sorry, I failed preschool. I don't play well with others. It's mine alone or it's not at all. How did he take it? Cool. I don't want to own a shop. Nice. That worked out well. (laughs) (laughs) So I already knew his position on owning a shop so 
it was so you didn't even you didn't even think that like oh i don't know if i want to do this it was like i don't want to own it it's either mine or it's not yeah mine was i don't play well with others my next position is if you're if you're closing it down it's mine i'm take i'm having this shop this is mine because you're invested by this stage <laughs> i'd gone from it had gone from a one-man little shop to a full shop move where we went to a workshop that had four times as much space as what I used to work in and then a fellow work colleague out the back. So I had developed the shop with him. We both went out. We both created the image of the shop and I went, no, it's mine. (laughs) I've worked my butt off here for nine years. I'm doing this. Let's do it. So... uh, 12th of July, 2012, I signed the paperwork and bought RHD. So in 12 months' time, there's going to be a big-ass party. <laughs> was that was that scary or exciting for you? I was petrified. <laughs> I won't lie, I was petrified. Yeah. I got, uh, I got staff, I've got wages, I've got bills, I've got... Now nah, we'll be fine. <laughs> just give it a go. Let's just do this. I want to talk about COVID. Oh, between COVID and the floods in Townsville, I don't know how I'm still here. What did that do for you? What did it do for your business? It nearly killed my business twice. Um, The floods here in Townsville, um, as a repairer, I do insurance work. I actually stat wrote off over half a million dollars worth of my customers' bikes um so that's my income yeah right because now they don't need bike services because they don't need tires they don't need servicing they don't need bling they don't need me they don't need the shop do those customers buy new bikes five of them did even now only five because a lot of them were worried that they weren't going to get paid the insurance wasn't paying out for their houses. The insurance wasn't paying out for their vehicles. Some people are still fighting insurance now. And I was one of them until only about a couple of months ago. Um, I still hadn't been paid for the damage that happened within my shop. I was still fighting that until only a couple of months ago. And we're talking a, an event that happened two years ago. So my business took a massive hit. But we were working from six o'clock in the morning through till eight o'clock at night, picking up bikes for customers, trying to help our customers out because everything had just been devastated. We were just starting to get through all of that when COVID hit. And then shut your doors. Um, Although we are still classed as a repairer, which makes us an essential um, service. People can't bring their bikes to me. They can't do the kilometers. We were shut down for 50 kilometers. We weren't allowed to go anywhere any further than 50 kilometres. I had one of my guys that was going to 50 kilometres and then literally going around the roundabout because he just wanted to ride for his own mental health. He just kept going around the roundabout. (laughs) Bike riding is, is more than just bike riding. We use it for our own mental health. It's a way of being part of a, a community but with, without being part of a community because we're all on our own bikes. We're isolated and yet not isolated at the same time. Because your bike shop isn't just a mechanic shop, is it? No. No, it's a, we're, the, we're the enthusiast shop. It is a family-run, family-orientated business. 
we look after each other. If somebody is in need, we will go and assist. We have people that have lost lives on motorcycles. I put their coffin in my sidecar and I will carry them to their final resting place. This is not uh, a job for me. This is a lifestyle choice. That's the way I've always seen it. So although I was still at work, nobody could do the kilometres. I lost 27 bookings the day they shut us down. Yeah. And if people now aren't riding their bikes, they're not clocking up the case or the tyres to even get them repaired, are they all serviced? Yep. It's also the money factor. No one's had any money. COVID stopped everybody, mm. stopped incomes from coming in. So I had to develop a... That's, that's the V8 supercars parade driving past. Hi. Speaking of loud cars. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you pivot a business in, in your industry during COVID? You can't. They just weren't doing the kilometres, so they had no reason to bring me the bike. I got one particular lady, she gets her bike serviced approximately five times a year. If you remember this, that's every 5,000 kilometres that a bike is serviced. She had her bike serviced once. And that's just one of my customers, and she's absolutely fantastic. I was lucky that I had enough backlog of bikes that I could actually just keep tinkering because I went from being three weeks in advance to having no bookings at all. There was none in my book. I had to cancel them all. Everybody can't just cancel because they were too worried. They didn't have the money to actually pay for it. There were family issues, whatever, whatever happened. It was the people at the other end. As much as they didn't want to cancel, they had no choice because they had to actually be careful with their money. And as a single parent, I so understand that because I've done budgeting on, on very little for a very long time. So I was I was one of those ones that was, that's okay. So I I developed a program very a very long time ago, which I think actually helped some of uh, a lot of my customers. I actually teach them how to do their minor services themselves. It's not a classroom, it's just a one-on-one and they're doing it on their own bikes, so they're learning about their own bike. So for those that needed, they knew that they needed to do it, but they couldn't afford me, they already had that skill set because I'd actually already trained them. Mm. Um, We didn't really look for new ways. We just reminded everybody what we do. We recycle your oil for free if you buy your oil and filters from us. We we are there for us. If you have a, a question, send a photo through on Facebook. Call me. What was like getting parts in, um, into the country? What parts? I still can't get parts. I have I have at least a dozen parts on back order from January last year. I still cannot get parts for certain things. Trying to work any sort of uh, forecasting or any sort of work schedule is non-existent. We wait until the parcels come in and then we reshuffle out. Every day we're reshuffling. So I think what made it even harder during the first hit of COVID was I actually broke my collarbone. I was doing diagnostics on a bike and the engine cut out. That wasn't the bit that hurt. It was when it kicked back in seven seconds later and spat me off. (laughs) So I was still going to work with COVID (laughs) (laughs) and a broken collarbone. I was trying and trying and trying to make sure that everybody still had a job. My five-man shop went... Yeah, what does that pressure feel like? Because that's... Were you eligible for JobKeeper? Not eligible. 
And then when they did make me eligible, the loopholes that you had to jump through, somewhere along the line, you fell through one of the rabbit holes. My accountant was absolutely phenomenal in this. She was amazing. She helped us get a couple of the grants through. But again, you're only talking two grants of $20,000, which technically doesn't get you much. My five-man shop went to a two-man shop and it was that way for over six months. I had to let my staff go. I tried for months and months. I won't tell you it was easy because it wasn't. It was heartbreaking. Yeah. It was heartbreaking to have to actually let staff go. It was heartbreaking to actually say to my family environment, I'm sorry, I just can't, I can't keep doing this. Even though they all knew at the get-go that I would do my darndest, it was, it was devastating. Mm. Because I, I don't just employ people, I look after their families as well because... Yeah, that's what a family is. Pretty much. I think we finally managed to get a little bit ahead this year. I've actually put on my own apprentice. So I have, I have my first apprentice as business owner. Right. He's doing well and I went through the same nonsense that I do all the time with the government because it took him four and a half months to actually lodge his paperwork. I don't know if that's ever going to get any better with government, isn't it? Some days I really wish we could sack them all. <laughs> and restart again. No, I just want to put some, some parents in. They're worried about so much parts of society from the depression factor for the young kids to um, the the mortality rate due to health issues, uh, you name it. Have you ever tried to actually go vegetable shopping on one of those, on, a, on, a, on the dole? I've done it. The only way to do it is if a bunch of parents get together and you decide to do a fruit co-op. You can't do it. So if you're worried about our health, if you're worried about the conditions that are out there, then something needs to be put in place. Are going to run for politics one day? I actually got asked if I was going to do that several years ago. I'm not sure if you can say this, but it is a podcast. But I just turned around and say it's quite simple. I say fuck too much. <laughs> I try and help where I can. So the way I help is by doing what I can with my business for Townsville locals. I support three charities every year with donations. Uh, I have stipulations. They must be Townsville-based. They must not be eligible for government funding. Um, And it must be something that's going to end up back in the community or assisting that particular family in a way that it is going to make their life easier. So that's, that's that's who I am. I want to make sure that we give back. Yeah. And it's something that I've always done. Where do you get your inspiration from? Uh, My mother and my daughter. Those two are my drive. My mother is probably um, my inspiration the most because she uh, did everything on her own. She never asked for assistance, hated asking for help in any way, shape or form, but knew when she had to. Um, My daughter is my drive because she is the one that I need to be there for. Um, And then they switched roles, not actually sure when, (laughs) but they switched roles uh, somewhere over the line. Um, And now my mum needs me more. My daughter is growing up. She's independent. She lives away from home. She's not even in Townsville these days. She lives in Brisbane on her own, but she still calls mummy. (laughs) Oh, you never stop. Got to have my mummy chat. (laughs) 
Thank you. It's okay. You got a lot to give. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> We're very lucky to have you. Thank you. Your daughter's very lucky to have you. Nah. <laughs> She'll sit there and go, yes. Every time she actually ends up having to talk about her inspiration, she bursts into tears. Yeah, it's hard, right? Because she probably her, is me. the person she is today. Not probably. She's the person she is today because of you. She's a good egg. Yeah. She's a hard head, but she's Do you a good remind egg. her of that parental guilt back in four years of age? <laughs> like, <laughs> Every chance I get. Brave is jointly funded by the Commonwealth and Queensland governments under the Disaster Recovery Funding Arrangements. This podcast is produced by Damien Lawarden.